what value does a body have? Particularly once we're no longer using it. We've all heard of body snatchers, people who use bodies for profit, sometimes for good, like helping medical students, and sometimes not. But what happens when a body becomes a political tool, when it becomes the entire symbol of an entire political party? And what happens when that body disappears? Does the movement die with it? Or... Does the very existence of the body and the mystery of where it went move on and become an enigma in and of itself? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So after a couple of weeks hiatus, I decided to come back with a double feature right in time for Halloween. Now, this is going to be a little bit different of a body-snatching tale, And when I release the back-to-back episodes, I think it will become a little bit more clear as to why I chose to pair them together. So I will ask (laughs) for a bit of indulgence because I am going outside my general wheelhouse. Now, if you are a longtime listener, you might remember that in December of 2020, I did an episode about incorruptibles. Those that the Catholic Church, for whatever reason, believes are so without sin and due to their connection with God that they literally don't decay. And this is often seen as a symbol of sainthood. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend going back and listening to it because it might give you a little bit of perspective. And I confess, I didn't go back and listen to that episode myself, but I'm pretty sure that I mentioned some research that I had had done for a conference paper a couple of years ago about where in the modern day, this idea of incorruptibles has kind of been co-opted by other groups. So not specifically just the Catholic Church, but almost society at large. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about a particularly famous corpse and how its story is very much tied to not just politics, but an entire ideology. And to do that, and this is why I need a little bit of indulgence, we're going to leave the United States, which I know normally I stick to the United States, but this is a good story. And when I decided on my Halloween episode, I decided that this was a really good bookend to it because there are a lot of cultural similarities, there are a lot of belief-based similarities, and while there's no direct connection between the two episodes, I think you will see why thematically they work together really well. So if you haven't guessed already, I'm going to be talking today about the body of Ava Perone. Now, for those of you who might not be up on your general (laughs) global history for the 20th century, most of you are probably much more familiar with the term for her, the pet name Evita. Perhaps the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that was very popular, originally popularized in the 1970s with Patti LuPone which came roaring back on the scene in the 1990s when they made a movie version of it with Madonna and Antonio Banderas. I read once that Ava Perone is the second most important woman in Latin American culture after Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so if you in a Catholic-dominated country are right up there with the Virgin Mary, that says something about you. So... 
I'm not going to go too deep into it, but uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background for those of you who might not be as familiar with her, because I think understanding who she was, what she meant to the Argentine people, and the way that they treated her will explain a little bit more about what happened to her after death. So bear with me, those of you who might be less interested in the biological information, I, I think it's worth going into, though, because it explains a lot about the way that she was seen and perceived. So, as you may be aware, she was First Lady of Argentina. She was married to the president at the time from when he was elected in June 1946 until her death. And it is a rather premature death, which I will get to. So, Eva Perón is actually born Eva Marie Duarte on May 7th, 1919. This was up in the air for a long time because in her own autobiography, which is called La Razón de Mi Vida... She actually purposely obscures her childhood for a couple of reasons, most importantly because she was illegitimate. So her father, um, whose name was Juan Duarte, was a rancher, quite successful, already had a wife and family. And so Ava's mother and her siblings were all illegitimate. They were kind of his second family. He eventually abandons them, goes back to his wife, and when he dies, they get nothing. So she's born illegitimate in um, Juanin, that province of Argentina, and really grows up kind of in this this dark family history that she's quite ashamed of and she does try very hard to obscure later on in life, including actually lying about her age. So for much of her life, and if you read accounts of her at the time, they actually usually list her as being three years younger because she had lied about her age to try to cover up that information. So she leaves and moves to the city, to Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, around the age of 15 in 1934. And over the next decade, she begins to build a career. And she does it in a variety of ways as a dancer, as a model, and eventually by getting into radio. The thing you have to understand about Ava Perone and her life is that it is very much shaped by ambition, but it's not ambition to a particular thing. So I mentioned she becomes the first lady of Argentina, and she does this by marrying Juan Perón. Now, Juan Perón at the time was not president. He was a colonel, had distinguished himself militarily. He was twice her age. So at the time of their marriage, he was 48 and she was 24. His first wife, whose name was Aurelia, had died of cancer in 1938 he and Eva don't meet until 1944. And they meet at a benefit concert. There had been a, an earthquake in uh, the town of San Juan, Argentina. They were raising money for this. And at the time, she was a pretty well-known radio star. She participated in old-school serial um, stories and novelizations, things like that. Think Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, that type of thing. They immediately become very close because within about a year of them meeting each other, things start to heat up politically in Argentina. So she is dating Juan Perón. They have a relationship. Um, she, at this point, is more of his mistress slash girlfriend. And at the time, um, Juan Perón is a huge threat because there is a forced resignation of the then president, Pedro Ramirez. And in the aftermath of this, he is arrested, he is imprisoned, and 
a big part of their relationship is the campaign that Ava leads to get him released. So she actually has like a serialized radio program called Towards a Better Future, which is basically a sort of Superman serialization of Juan Perón and his contributions to the country and explaining why he is good for the people. Now, her target audience with this is the lower working class, the people who will become known as the descomisados, the shirtless ones. Massive amounts of power can be found in labor unions in Argentina at the time. By tapping into that, they are able to rally a huge group of supporters behind Perón, who they paint as being the victor of the people. Depending on how familiar you are with Latin American politics, uh, he is what's often known as um, a caudillo, which it doesn't really have a great English translation, but I have heard, I've, I've heard it used a lot with particularly this era where it's kind of like a warlord. So he has this background, he's a powerful military leader, and he is seen as being this great champion because he knows, he knows what, it's out, what it is to be out there in the trenches. It's the same way that you have people like Ulysses S. Grant, people like Dwight D. Eisenhower. They might not be the best politicians, but they are seen as being highly capable because of their ability to be good generals. So Ava leads this huge campaign, which really tops out in October of 1945, when there's a huge rally of about 300,000 people outside the Casa Rosada in Buenos Aires, which, again, you've probably seen pictures of it. And then eventually on October 17th, which is today still known as Loyalty Day, Juan Perón is released from prison and he and Ava marry in secret the following day. Thus begins his political career, his real political career. And in 1946, he is elected president. Huge landslide. She is a big part of this. She will be the nexus of the female Peronist party in Argentina. She will eventually become a huge driving force between, behind the approval of female suffrage, which is achieved on September 9th, 1947. It's hard to overstate how many things that she had her hands in. Um, the Ava Peron Foundation was a huge charitable foundation started by her. At its zenith, it reaches something around 3 billion pesos. Um, you hear a lot today about how corrupt it was and how it really was not very well organized and they didn't keep great records. In 1947, she also goes on her famous rainbow tour of Europe where she treats with a number of European leaders. And it is an indication more so, even just than what's going on in Argentina, of the fact that Perón is very much a fascist. And her relationship with not just General Franco, who is still in power in, pain, in Spain, but also kind of the support for the former government of Mussolini that happens when she is in Italy really does not hurt, endear her at all. In fact, there are several world leaders who decline to allow her to visit, including Great Britain. To be fair, Great Britain also had a beef because, if you remember, Argentina was one of Great Britain's colonies and Perón was a big part of them getting kicked out for good. 
1951, when Perón comes up for re-election, he chooses her as her his vice president. She declines. This is seen as a great deal of humility, but the reality is, is that she is actually quite ill. In May of 1952, she is named the spiritual leader of the nation. It is a title that no person had held before and no person has held since in Argentina. And there is not really a great definition of what spiritual leader of the nation actually means. But she was held to this standard where she was almost part human and part divine. She was seen as, you know, the picture of Catholic womanhood. Even though she had no children of her own, she was a spiritual mother to the country. It's a very complex and quite unique situation in many ways. So backtracking a little bit, in January of 1950, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. It was quite advanced. In 1951, she underwent a radical hysterectomy to try to save her. She was also the first Argentinian to undergo chemotherapy, none of which worked. She declined quite quickly. Um, I have seen claims that she was actually lobotomized before her death to help her control her pain. We do know that she only weighed about 80 pounds at the time of her death. But eventually she wasted away, and on July 26th, 1952, at 8.25 in the evening, Ava Perón died at the age of 33. Now, that's a very condensed five to seven minute history of her life. And so I left a lot out. But this is the beginning, because understanding that explains to you just how important she was to the people. Now, I don't have to tell anybody, because obviously the entire world just watched the pomp, the circumstance, everything that happened with Queen Elizabeth. And I talked before that about what happened with Princess Diana. In a way, Ava Prone's death definitely mirrors something like Diana. They were only a couple of years apart in age. Very, very similar profiles where they were not traditional women in the sense of what was seen as acceptable at the time. Both very stylish, both very charismatic. And that's honestly a parallel I didn't think about making until I started talking and it really made sense to me. But this whole process really mirrors it because the outpouring of grief and emotion that occurs is partially over the fact that people did not expect this. She was 33 years old. And in fact, most of them thought she was 30 because remember, she lied about her age. The grief that happened, so within 24 hours of her death, over 2,000 are injured and eight are crushed to death in the masses of people that rush into the capital that are trying to be outside of where she is, are trying to strain to see things. At the time, the Olympics were going on in Helsinki. They had special services for all of the Argentinian athletes that were there because they could not be there in person. Similar to Princess Diana too, every flower shop in Buenos Aires sold out of flowers. They had to ship them from as far away as Chile. There was a 10-day official mourning period. More than 2 million folks lined up to pat file past her casket, which I will talk a little bit about this. This is something that you may have seen photos of. It is a very well-photographed and documented event. I mean, keep in mind, this is the 50s. 
we have television, we have photography. So th this is very well documented. And if you are curious, there are plenty of pictures out there that you can find. The other interesting thing that kind of lines up with the way that she was seen is that those who could not go to Buenos Aires all around the country set up their own small shrines to her. And there were actually these passion plays performed where people actually were acting out scenes from her life and her life with Juan Perón. And it took on a very saint-like Catholic atmosphere where they were acting this out as if she were some sort of martyr, as if she were some kind of saint. And that's one of the reasons that I, I encourage you to go back and you listen to the episode about the Incorruptibles, because the narrative that happens, and it happens quite organically, I think. This is not something that the government was really pushing. This was something that the kind of enigma that she had woven around herself while she was alive naturally translated once she was dead. Because keep in mind, this is a Catholic country. This is a familiar model for the people. They are used to this. They are used to worshiping relics. They are used to saints and incorruptibles and all of these things. And when you term that someone is the spiritual leader of the nation, she becomes elevated to another level. Now, it's also worth noting that there is a certain precedent for all of this, which I will talk to a little bit more when I talk about what happens to her. So, upon her death, one of the first things that happens is Juan Perón does express his desire for her to be embalmed. Now, embalming is certainly not a new practice at this point. It has been popular since the post-Civil War era. But he wants this to be a permanent preservation. Now, if you <laughs> have listened to the Incorruptibles episode, or if you know anything about decay in general, there really is no decay-free model. Maybe with the plastification and body worlds type exhibits that they have today, but even that largely replaces organic material with other materials like, say, plastic. <laughs> We weren't quite there yet, but he certainly did try. And so I will say that this next part of the story, some of you, particularly if you are speakers of the Spanish language or if you watch a lot of Spanish language television, I just found this out as I was doing the research. Hulu actually made a series called uh, Santa Evita, which is based on one of the fictionalized accounts of what happens to Eva Perón's body that was published back in the 90s. Um, it is in Spanish. Um, I watched a couple of episodes, but I confess it was a little hard even for me to follow because the story is told with a voiceover and there are no subtitles for the voiceover. There's only subtitles for the direct conversation. So I felt like I got maybe 40% of it and I knew the story, so I was able to follow along, but if you don't speak Spanish, it's, it's going to be tough. It has been covered in a number of books as well, worth noting, and a couple of documentaries. So this story is definitely out there if you are interested. And I will say that, at least from what I saw of the Santa Via series, it was beautiful to look at. Okay, backtracking to a man named Pedro Ara. Now, Pedro Ara 
was a professor at the University of Cordoba in Argentina. He had taught there from 1925 to 1932. He is known for his ability to give a very high quality level of embalming. Now, as someone who had taught anatomy and who had an intimate knowledge of it, he had sought a way to perfect the process, to elevate it. Pedro Ara is born in 1898. He will eventually live until 1973. And his method was, in addition to traditional embalming, which removes the natural fluids, blood, from the body and replaces them with a preservative, he also sought to eliminate the more unpleasant aspects of that. Even today, embalming results in very stiff, rigid features. And that's the reason that as hard as we try, when you go to a funeral and you see somebody laid out, they don't look terribly lifelike. And that's because you need to preserve them, otherwise the body is going to start to decay. And so his solution for this was to do an initial embalming, an additional traditional embalming, for the public funeral. And then... He was going to take over and do a more permanent process of preservation, which he called paraffination. Um, essentially, it's in addition to the traditional embalming, he embalms her multiple times with increasing amounts of glycerin being added. So both glycerin baths and the addition of glycerin to the traditional embalming fluids. The idea is, is that it keeps the skin, so glycerin, the same thing that's in soap, keeps the skin soft and supple and more lifelike. It also gives it a more natural hue than the, just the traditional chemicals. I have also read that he added a protective coating to the skin because a lot of the problem is, is that the skin becomes kind of a film so think about how like bacteria grows on a Petri dish or algae grows in water. So this protective film protected her skin from starting to grow unpleasant things. This whole process, supposedly he was paid around $100,000 for this process. And this is something that took a long time. Because what's going to happen is that in 1955, Juan Perón is going to be overthrown. He is going to have to flee quickly, and he is going to be deposed from power. Now, where had all of this been happening? It's a worthwhile question, right? So what had happened was they actually set up a laboratory in the CGT, the Confederación General de Trabajo. The CGT was a central agency under the Peronist government, and this is actually where Ava had had her offices when she was alive. So she was placed in an office there, and that was where Dr. Ara did all of his work. And so from the time of her death in July of 1952 until the time that Juan Perón is deposed, which this happens in November of 1955. So we're talking at this point over three years, this preservation process has been happening. Now, so Juan Perón, he flees to Paraguay. He will eventually settle in Madrid where he will live for almost the next 20 years. At this point, 
the military uh, coup that deposes him actually confiscates the remains from Ara. Now, in the meantime, they weren't stupid. They knew that this was a distinct possibility. So in addition to Eva Perón's actual body, they had brought in an Italian sculptor who had made numerous wax replicas of it, which were supposedly so lifelike it was very difficult to tell the difference. So this is where uh, Colonel Carlos Kooning comes in. And Kooning, again, huge character. You may have seen him. He was sent in with the purpose because he had known Ava Prone in life of determining which of these was the real one. And he eventually figured this out supposedly by snipping off one of her fingers. And he found that there was actual bone inside. The reason that her body was such a hot commodity is because of this passion play, because of her symbolism to the Peronist regime, there was a great fear that her remains would become a site of pilgrimage. They would become this holy relic to the Peronist regime. So the idea was that if Juan Peron was gone and he was out of power, and Ava, who was seen as their saint, as their spiritual leader, was nowhere to be found... They couldn't flock to her, and she wouldn't keep their hopes alive for a return of a Peronist government. And so Kooning will have the body for a couple of years. It's stored in his offices. It's stored in a car parked in the street near the waterworks at one point. It's pretty complicated. And I confess, as somebody who is not fluent in Spanish... I have read a lot of the English accounts, a lot of the stories. Um, I've read a couple of the English language biographies of Evita, which surprisingly takes a long time for one to be written. The first one that's written is actually called The Woman with the Whip, which gives you an idea of how folks outside of Argentina saw Evita. But so for the better part of two years, this is hidden. Um, And... By 1957, what eventually happens is they have decided that there is too much risk. There are still too many people who are loyal, and they just need to get it out. And at this point, what happens to Ava's body really disappears out of everyone's knowledge. So there are a lot of rumors that float around for the first few years, and then it's just like, we don't know what happened to her. And supposedly they sent out decoy teams. There are a lot of myths and legends around this time. You know, they sent out decoy teams that buried the wax figures. You know, I have read that Kooning apparently kept her body as a trophy in his office and he and his men had sex with it. There's a lot of weird stories, most of which I think are a little too outlandish. I think that mostly they were trying to keep this under wraps, but I think it was also a time of political unrest and most people didn't know what was happening. Now, this is probably a good place to pause and talk about what had originally been the intent. So, shortly before Ava's death, about a week before, there was actually a law passed which gave funding for what was proposed to be the monument to the Discomisados specifically to the unknown shirtless men, those who had died in the cause of the Peronist regime. And this monument was going to be twofold. It was going to be a monument to the workers, but it was also going to be the permanent shrine of Eva Peron. 
Now, when she was on that famous rainbow tour of Europe, when she was touring around, she had seen Invalide, where Napoleon is buried, Napoleon and his sarcophagus. He is not technically on display, but it is a central location where people can come. I've been there. I have seen where Napoleon is buried. Probably a better example of this is Lenin's tomb in Red Square. Now, this is certainly not a new idea. Lenin died in 1924 and has been on display ever since. Franco, remember their buddy over in Spain, the Valley of the Fallen, he built to be his eventual tomb. He was there from his death in the 70s up until about two years ago when they finally removed him. But similar idea, the Valley of the Fallen is the graves of all of those who fell in the Spanish Civil War. Are you starting to see a trend? A lot of these totalitarian regimes... They all seek to maintain their power. They all seek to maintain their mythology by putting these figures on public display, by giving them godlike qualities. It's a fascinating and weirdly twisted piece of history. But if you look even just at those examples that I just gave, you can see where this weird trend comes from. And you can also see how it very closely connects to the idea of incorruptibles in the Catholic Church, because saints who supposedly have been touched by God also are believed to be incorrupt. So this monument was going to be massive. It was going to be twice the size of the Statue of Liberty. The original proposal was that it was going to be 140 meters tall with a 53 meter statue on top. So the base was going to be kind of an open colonnade. And Ava was supposed to be displayed inside in a crystal casket. Now, she wasn't supposed to be fully exposed. The proposal was to have a thin silver covering in her exact shape, which was actually conceived by the sculptor Carlos Poleros. It was never fully executed. He made the models, which he hid during all of this unrest. Um, He sold the silver that he was supposed to make it out of to keep his family afloat. And his son has since put on display some of these. So this open colonnade would be surrounded by 16 statues, 5 meters in height. Massive. And then above that would have been a frieze showing the dramatic scenes from the Peronist Revolution. And then above that, a tall fluted column. And at the top, a burly man with his shirt unbuttoned, with his muscular arms, and behind him an anvil showing that he is a worker. So it was going to be a monument to what was the, you know, bedrock of the Peronist regime, the worker, the Discomisados, but also their queen in the form of Evita. The proposed location was um, what is today Ruben Dario Square, It is actually where Argentine public television is located, fun fact. I don't need to tell you this was never built. Like many of the other ideas of the regime, this fell apart when Juan Perón's time in Argentina ended. So it was never realized. So 1957, Eva disappears. And she will not reappear again for another 13 years. Now, luckily for you, I know what happened to her. Her body was secretly smuggled out of the country, and it was smuggled to Italy. Now, 
again, I have read a lot about this, about who was involved, what the underlying um, story was. I have heard that it's possible that the Pope was involved, that the Pope wanted to protect her as a good Catholic woman. I think it was somebody knew somebody. Regardless, so she was buried under the false name of Maria Maggi de Magistris, an Italian widow. She was buried in a cemetery in Milan, Italy. Now, I have also heard that she was buried standing up, which based on the damage to her body might be true. I don't think she was buried standing up for very long. I think she was transported standing up. Because one of the things that happened to her is that her nose gets rather squashed and there are some bruises on her body. Like, you know, she's being thrown around like freight, which is probably what did happen, especially if you're smuggling it. What happens is, and this is why her story is also so important, is that there is another coup. And so what happens is, in 1970, Pedro Aramburu was kidnapped. Now, there are a lot of reasons for his kidnapping, and I don't need to go into the full history of the messiness that is Argentinian politics in the 20th century. But one of the demands that they made of him was that he revealed the location of Eva Perón's body. And this is why I say it wasn't quite as slapdash as we think it was, because he knew. He knew exactly where she was. So it leads me to believe that somebody knew somebody knew somebody, and they had a plan for this, and they knew exactly where she was, so that way they could pull her back into service if they ever needed to. Now, unfortunately for him, they still murder him. (laughs) But he does give up the location, and so... Within the next year, they have not only located Ava Perón's remains, but they prepare to dig her up. Now, this is, to me, one of the most fascinating things about this, is that Perón has, at this point, been in exile for almost 20 years. But still, there are all of these connections So what they do is they go to Juan Perón and they talk about this and he actually is is present. And this is an interview with uh, Carlos Spadone, who was with him at the time. It says, quote, General Perón, the gardener and I took the body out of the coffin and lay it on a marble top table. So this is in Madrid at his residence. Our hands were dirty from all of the earth, so the body had to be cleaned. Isabel. Now, Isabel, it's worth noting, is Maria Estela Martinez, who is Juan Perón's third wife. Isabel took care that she carefully was able to clean the hair with cotton cloth and water. She combed out the hair, cleaned it bit by bit, and then blow dried it. It took us several days. There was a large dent in the nose. There were blows to the face and chest and marks on the back. There had also been a serious blow to one knee. I don't think that she'd been strung up or whipped, as some people say. I just don't believe that. So, in 1971, she is returned. So, this is September 1st, 1971. She is returned to Juan Perón in Madrid. Now, this is where things get really weird. Perón keeps her in the house. He displays her coffin open on a table. Isabel brushes her hair. They take care of her and they dress her. 
I'm not going to lie. It's weird. It's really, really weird. And particularly as Americans where we like to be separated from death. This is just weird. Now, I've heard other things like he supposedly made her lay beside the body to soak up Ava's charisma. And like, I don't know if I believe all of that. So the next step is, is that they decide to have all of the work or all the damage undone. So Domingo Tichella, who is a art restorer, is hired in 1973-1974 to go back and to reproduce Dr. Ara's work, because Dr. Ara at this time has died, um, to try to repair some of this. And it's amazing because you can see photographs. Like, if you are interested in the postmortem photographs, there are plenty of them out there if you are interested. You can see she looks very tan at this point if you look at the pictures like there's definitely some pigmentation to her skin I can't tell if it's just because it's black and white photographs or what I mean she definitely has been through the ringer and I think that there has been some deterioration her hair looks like a wig to me but I can't tell if it's just because they're messing with it and they're brushing it every day but anyways so she is back she is on display and then Oh, whoops. What happens next? Well, Juan dies as well. Now, this is where they pivot and they make the decision that what they are going to do is that Juan and Ava are going to be buried together in this grand mausoleum. And where are they going to build it? They're going to build it right where the original monument to the Descomisados was supposed to be. So Juan dies, and you can actually see lots of photographs of this as well, where you can see Juan and Ava laid out side by side. Weird, you know, because she's been dead for 22 years at this point. And after this happens, Isabel takes over and she becomes president in her husband's stead. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the fact that what they had always been pushing Ava for, Isabel actually achieves. Not for long, now. Um, so within two years, she is deposed. And she is deposed, and th- this is where things get really messy. And again, it could be a whole other episode in and of itself. It could be a probably 10-part episode about the history of Argentina. But so when Isabel is deposed in 1976, um, this happens by the Junta, which you may know was a U.S.-backed political coup, And this junta is what eventually will lead to the Dirty War, in which anywhere between 10 and 30,000 Argentinians disappear. You think the Peronist regime was bad? What happens in the fallout of the junta of the Dirty War is even worse. But there is, like, there's just absolute chaos from basically 1974, when Juan Peron dies, until 1983, when democracy truly returns to Argentina. Now, oddly enough, in the midst of all of this, it's almost like everybody has too many other things going on to really worry about this. And it's at this point that Ava finally is able to find rest. So in October of 1976, she is taken from Los Olivos, which Los Olivos was the presidential residence. It's in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. She has returned to her family. So at this point, her her mother and her brothers, all of them are still alive. And a lot of what had happened to her before that 
really was not of their wishing. They wanted her to have a traditional Catholic burial. They did not agree with the preservation. And they, of course, were distressed by the loss of her corpse. So the decision was made, give her back to her family. And so she is buried in the Duarte family tomb at La Recoleta Cemetery. Now, La Recoleta is an interesting cemetery because it starts as a public cemetery. But keep in mind that this is a Catholic country, so public cemetery is kind of a loose term. Um, it dates to 1822, so it is quite old. It, it is arguably one of the most beautiful cemeteries in the world. And I would say, I, I have not been there myself. It's definitely very high on my list of things to see. But the, the sculpture, just in the photographs I've seen, is perhaps the best I've seen outside of Italy. The sculptures are, are stunning. Um, if you look at it from the air, it might remind you a little bit of New Orleans cemeteries, above-ground crypts. Really, really just stunning. Um, so this is a, a top shelf. So it is located right next to the, um, the Basilica of Our Lady of Pilar which was built in 1732. It was originally a Franciscan um, convent for La Recolette, which was a group of monks who um, practiced the Franciscan order. It was originally a beautiful orchard. Now it's completely surrounded. Actually, interestingly enough, Ava Perone actually lived in the adjacent neighborhood at one point um, during her kind of rise to fame. But it's kind of appropriate because, you know, several Argentinian presidents are buried here. It's like the cream of society. So it's still an honorable place for her to rest. It's still very significant. And her family wanted to make sure that this was the end of it. So she is buried 15 meters down under layers of concrete and steel, and she is not going anywhere anytime soon. But she is definitely the biggest attraction in La Recoleta Cemetery. People make pilgrimage th is there. If you read any website, her name is the first name that is listed for famous people. Now Juan... <laughs> Juan did not fare quite so well. So he was buried in a separate cemetery, but not for long. In 1987, Juan was dug up and they stole the sword he was buried with, several other articles, most notably his hands, which were removed with a chainsaw and were held for ransom for $8 million. Nobody paid the ransom and we don't know where Juan's hands are. So at that point, Juan was disinterred and he was reinterred on his country estate, which is now a museum. Ouch. But when you think about how messy Argentinian politics are, are you really surprised? So there is a short history of the weird and wonderful story of Eva Perón and her wandering corpse. And again, when I, when I release the Halloween episode, it will make sense to you why we talked about this. But it's fascinating to me that there is this pseudo sainthood and Catholicism that is pushed by the Peronist regime, the way that they propose putting her on display, while her family, who are actually traditional Catholics, are like, no, that, that's obscene. We don't want that. And that sort of battle between, you know, these self-created demagogues and religious traditionalism. It's just a fascinating story to me. And the politicality of a body, the idea that a body retains power, that it still has value after death. And certainly based on the amount of people that I meet in the cemetery world who do nothing but collect famous graves, I guess people do see things that way. It's, it's a fascinating thing. 
Um, I, I continue. I mean, if I went to <laughs> Buenos Aires someday, I will 100% not just visit Racoleta. I would like to see a lot of the other places that this happened. As a woman, I find Ava Perone fascinating. I mean, I am older than her now and <laughs> have accomplished far less. So I think that there is something fascinating about her as an enigma and the fact that her life in many ways continued so long after her death only makes it a little bit more fascinating. So one of the most famous wandering corpses, hopefully a fun little story, a little bit spooky before Halloween, and a follow-up to my embalming. If you haven't had a chance yet, go back and listen. I was on Archive Atlanta last week with my friend Victoria, and we talked about H.M. Patterson and Spring Hill Mortuary here in Atlanta. Um, talked about weird embalming stuff. So if you are interested more in the funeral side of things, that's a fun little Fun little tangent. That was just last week. But I'll be back next week with another weird story of a wandering corpse in time for Halloween. So hopefully you enjoyed that. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review. It makes help, helps make me much more searchable to those who are looking for cemetery content. Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram, Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com if you need to get a hold of me. I am catching up on emails. I haven't gotten to all of them yet, but I will soon. Other than that, I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Enjoy your spooky season. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.